Thank you for welcoming me. That's very kind of you. Uh, if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 13? Luke chapter 13. We're, going to, we're starting a new series today. We, what we decided to do, we thought Luke was too big to do it all in just between now and Easter. So we're going to do the second half of Luke, starting in Luke 13 and then doing a chapter a week through until Easter. That's the plan. So we're going to build up in time for Good Friday and Easter Sunday with the end of the gospel, which I think will be great. And we're going to look at, this, uh, look at Luke's gospel through the themes of the king and his cross. Because Luke is very preoccupied with the twin themes of the kingdom of God and the cross of Christ. And it's easy in different kinds of Christianity to focus kingdom, kingdom, kingdom without focusing the cross. Or to focus cross, 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 Jesus died for me without seeing the kingdom so clearly. And what we're going to try and do is see both as we go through the second half of Luke. And as we read Luke 13, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's kind of long. But one of the things we'll see as we do is we'll see, get an introduction to some of the puzzles or tensions or even paradoxes of the kingdom of God. That as you read this, I think we'll see, wow, there's, there's teachings here that seem to be pulling against each other when it comes to understanding the kingdom. And we're going to read it and then try and make some sense of how to live and find wisdom in the middle of those tensions. Uh, which is the world that we're in and the scripture that we read. So I, th- I trust it will be helpful for us. We're going to begin reading at Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig round it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who'd had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. She couldn't fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from her bond on this Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what's the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew, and it became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven 
that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and won't be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here. The Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish apart from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you wouldn't. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. I don't know if you find this, but... um, I find Jesus' teaching often very easy to understand when I read a little bit of it, and then very difficult to understand when I read a lot of it. Right? I find he, Jesus compares the kingdom to something, and I go, yeah, okay, I got it. And then he says something else that sounds like he's saying something quite different. It seems to pull against the first thing, and then I feel like maybe I don't understand either of them. That's my experience. The kingdom of God teaching in the Gospels that Jesus gives seems to me to be chock full of puzzles or mysteries or tensions or paradoxes with that's true and that's true, but I find it hard to see how they're both true at once. Is Jesus going to come back before we expect it, like a thief in the night? Or is he going to come back after we expect it, like a bridesmaid who's run out of oil in her lamp? Which is it? And Jesus says both, and I think, I I don't quite understand. What do you mean? Is he going to be too early or too late? Do faithful people always get ransomed, healed, restored, like almost everyone Jesus meets in the Gospels? Or do they sometimes end up getting thrown in jail with their head chopped off and served on a platter to entertain dinner guests, like John the Baptist? It's like, well, I, I, I don't know, actually. It seems it's hard to know. Are we supposed to expect great success, like a mustard seed that turns into a huge tree, larger than all the trees in the garden? Or are we supposed to expect continuous failure like a a farmer who sows seed and three times out of four it doesn't produce any fruit at all are we dealing with a narrow way that few find or with a massive wedding feast that people are coming in from all the highways and hedges to sit down is the kingdom a free gift which a father gives to his son without him doing anything still smelling of pig flesh or is the kingdom incredibly expensive like a merchant who finds a fine pearl and has to sell everything he has in order to get it Which is it? Do you see what I mean? All of those things on their own are kind of straightforward, aren't they? But then they sit in tension with each other, and you think, 
And there's loads of them in this passage. I picked out four, which I hope will help us, because what Jesus does often is not to say, it's this simple, it's just that. He tends to say, it's that, and it's that, and wisdom is about living in how it's both. Much of the time, that's the way wisdom works in the Bible, and certainly in Jesus' teaching. And I think we're going to find four this morning that will help lead us to wisdom living in this life, because... My, my expectation is that most of us experience these tensions not only in the word, but also in our own lives. Am I supposed to expect success or suffering and difficulty? Am I supposed to expect breakthrough and influence or obscurity? Do you see what I mean? Am I supposed to find Christianity hard or easy? And I think if you're anything like me, I'm sure you have. You've lived, if you're a believer, certainly, and probably those of you who are not believers, looking at Christianity going, there do seem to be some puzzles here with respect to what kind of life I should expect as a Christian. And I think they're all right here in the teaching of Jesus. The four in this passage I want to explore together. The kingdom of God involves sudden judgments and astonishing patience at the same time. Can we put them up? Sudden judgment and astonishing patience. The kingdom of God comes with both influence and obscurity. So you're both very visible and very invisible. The kingdom of God is surprisingly exclusive and surprisingly inclusive. And the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. And I've put the verse references there so you can see which bits of the passage I'm getting these things from. But I think there are these are puzzles, and we see them all in here. And the passage starts with this tension, if you like, between the judgment of God and the patience of God. And it starts with a question that comes up in every generation. And people are specifically asking Jesus about it in his day. Right? It's a tough topic. When people are suddenly killed, how do you make sense of it and the justice and the judgment of God? And that's what's just happened. So we, we know from history that Pontius Pilate, though we, in the Gospels he seems like a bit of a ditherer, but actually we know from other historians that he was a very um, volatile man, a very and brutal man as a Roman governor, and that he would often make matters worse by being too heavy-handed with the Jews. And in the end, it was the end of his career. And that, that's, it, it happens in this very story because what's happened is Pilate has recently suppressed a Galilean rebellion, right? This is co- colonized peoples rise up and fight, right? That's not new. That's always happened. And it's what happens here. The Jews are colonized. The Romans are the oppressors. And the Jewish people get together in gangs and they fight. And Pilate wins because empire so often does. And he comes in and clamps down on them. And he doesn't just brutally suppress them, kill them all. He also takes their blood and mixes it in with the sacrifices they're trying to offer, which is no longer just brutal. It's also sacrilegious, right, to a Jew. And people are coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what do you think about that? Did they have it coming, do you think? Were these people particularly bad? Is Is that why God allowed it to happen? And that always happens, doesn't it? When something tragic happens in our world, we try and make sense of it. And one of the ways we do is by basically blaming the people to whom it happened and thinking they're particularly bad. Does it happen at 9-11? Tragically, there were Christians around the world saying, This is a sign of the judgment of God on the New York financial system or the American morality or whatever it was. And it happens all the time. Do you remember it happened at Haiti 10 odd years ago? Oh, they got got struck with that because of voodoo in their history. It happened with New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina. Oh, that was because New Orleans is the place where Mardi Gras happens and it's all gay rights. So there's always people who will find a reason why they think God is judging that particular group. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You 
are also guilty of the same things they were. They're not worse than anybody else, these Galileans. They, you are guilty. You need to repent. And if you don't, you will perish as well. You see, judgmentalism is very comfortable. It's very comfy, isn't it? Because you get to go, ah, oh, well, that awful thing happened to them. But that's because they're evil. And I'm not. So I'll be fine. Fortunately, that will never happen to me. And Jesus says, no, it's not like that. You need to repent too. Don't worry about what they did. Worry about whether or not you also are guilty of the self-same things, and therefore you need to repent. And if you don't, you're going to perish too. It's such a powerful answer because it doesn't do either of the two things that we want to do. Because some of us go the judgmental route. Oh, that happened to them because of X. Others of us do the opposite. We go, no, they were all innocent victims and so am I. Well, Jesus won't have that either. Jesus says, no, they're not. This may or may not have been a result of their sin, but if you don't repent of yours, you're in big trouble too. Do you see, he, he turns the tables on them and wants them to reckon, reckon with the reality of the sudden judgment of God. All of you are deserving judgment, he says. If you don't repent, you're all in big trouble. So there's no need, no need to gloat about the fact that it's just happened to them or think it won't happen to you. It may very well happen to you. So it's all about the sudden judgment of God. And having just made that point, Jesus then tells a story which seems to pull completely in the opposite direction. He tells a story. Uh, having, you know, Jesus is big on judgment. If you read the words of Jesus, you'll see it everywhere in Jesus' teaching. But then he starts telling a story about the astonishing patience of God as well. The fact that God doesn't judge when he could. He often delays judgment well beyond what we think is reasonable. And he tells this story. He says it's like a man who plants a fig tree in a vineyard and it doesn't produce any fruit. And he goes away and he comes back the next year, still no fruit. Goes away, comes back next year, still no fruit. What's going on? And he says to his vine dresser, what is happening here? This plant is a waste of space. Cut it down. And the guy says to him, no, can I just, can you give me one more year? Seriously, just one more year. Just be a little bit more patient. If you're patient with me, I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to get manure, which is fertilizer. I'm going to do all I can to make this flourish. And if it does, brilliant. If not, you can cut it down. But just give me a chance. Give me one more chance. And Jesus tells that story about the patience of God in delaying judgment long after you'd think it would come. Immediately after this discussion about the judgment of God. It's like he wants you to know that the judgment of God might come suddenly upon you for your sin, but he also wants you to know that the kind of God you are worshipping is so patient and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love that he isn't going to do that until the last possible minute. But he also doesn't want you just to presume on that patience because you do need to know that if you don't repent, you'll perish as well. But he doesn't want you just to think about that because he wants you to know that God is patient and kind. And he wants you to hold that paradox rather than thinking, God is an ogre who will judge. Or thinking, hey, God's cool with my sin, man. He doesn't want you to do either of those things. So he tells you both of them next to each other and says, wisdom is living in both. You see, that's how he often teaches. a puzzle of the kingdom. And in fact, in that space between those two, that's where you pray. That's where you witness to people about the gospel, isn't it? Because you think, if it's all judgment, there's no point in praying because we're all going to die. If it's all patience, there's no point in praying because we're all going to be fine. But the fact that I know God will judge, but that he is patient with us in the meantime, inspires me, compels me to pray and to witness and to live faithfully in the meantime. It's a paradox of the kingdom. So the kingdom involves judgment and patience. The kingdom also involves great 
influence and visibility and prominence alongside great obscurity and hiddenness. It's like a mustard seed, Jesus says, that starts small but gradually grows and then it breaks through the surface of the ground and gets larger and larger. And by the end, it's this huge tree that's bigger than the other bushes in the garden and the birds come and make their nests in the kingdom of God. It breaks through, becomes visible and prominent, noticeable, and other people then come and find that it serves them and helps them. So you should expect the kingdom to be prominent, visible, for people to look at it and say, yes, this is down to the goodness of God. At the same time, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, a yeasty lump, which a woman took and hid in a measure of flour until the whole thing was leavened. Now, my mum used to do home baking. Some of you may, I don't. But I don't think that the procedure is usually known as hiding yeast in dough. Right? Shh, don't tell anybody. I'm just going to hide it in there. That's not the word you'd normally use. But Jesus does. It's not the regular word you'd expect for cooking. This is a, he specifically says it's hidden in the dough. And it's because Jesus is trying to teach us that the kingdom of God is often very obscure. It can't be seen a lot of the time. It very gradually and invisibly forms the world around it over a long time, but you can't see it. You don't go, wow, look at this, the kingdom coming. It's just obscure. It's ordinary. It's mundane. It's humdrum. It's invisible. And that's how God shapes the world with his rule, his kingdom, in this age. That is an aspect of the kingdom that in our culture is very hard for us to recognize. Because unlike most humans who've lived... And most humans who live, they hardly leave their village, right? So, of course, people don't know who they are. They don't become worldwide recognition, and you don't know what's going on elsewhere. Celebrity is very difficult to maintain in most history of most cultures. But in ours, everybody can be famous, everything's Instagrammable, everything's put, hey, look, it's all shiny and it's new, and everything's entertainment-obsessed and social media-saturated. And because of that, it can be very easy for us to think that the purposes of God always come in prominent influential ways, like a big tree, and not in hidden, obscure, very slow, unnoticeable ways, like a woman hiding yeast inside flour. Influence is great. Praise God for those of us. There are people in this room who have got great influence and prominence as a result of your work. Praise God for the way he raises Christians up in a society. Hallelujah. But we've got to recognize that that's not the only way the kingdom comes. And actually, a lot of the time, the kingdom comes as a woman gets up, and you've never heard of her, and she just gets up and brushes her teeth and makes the tea. And then she goes and helps get her kids ready for school. And then she remembers to read the Bible for a few minutes each day. She remembers to pray for her friends and neighbors and for God to work in her life. She works diligently in her job. She loves her neighbors. She shares Jesus when she can. And sometimes she forgets or gets it wrong. Sometimes she gets it right. And she is faithful to her husband. And she disciples her children. And at the end of the day, she goes to bed. And then she wakes up the next day and does it again. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom as well. It's hidden. It's not seen. You've never heard of it. You're not going to blog about it. If you don't recognize that that is how the kingdom often comes, you end up living in the Lego movie. Everything is awesome. Woo! Look, shiny new. Woo! And Jesus is saying, no, well, the kingdom of God is like a huge tree. Praise God for that. But it's also like yeast hidden. And that's the lives that, honestly, most of us are called to, isn't it? It's obscurity. But we mustn't overcorrect and then go, oh, it's all obscure. No, we don't want anybody to be prominent. Oh, who cares about those big, flashy Americans and their prominent breakthrough? We don't need that. We're all just soldiering on in the darkness. No, because the kingdom is also, is about influence. We don't want tall poppy syndrome. (gasps) 
you've become famous, you must have sold out, you must be ungodly. No, that's not true either. The kingdom of God is like a mustard tree that is intended to get credit in the world's eyes at times and find people coming to find shelter and hope in it. But it's also hidden. It involves influence and obscurity. Third, the kingdom of God is both surprisingly exclusive and surprisingly inclusive at the same time. So someone says to Jesus what I've often wondered, Lord, will those who are saved be, be few? And he doesn't quite answer the question. Right? On the one hand, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Right? Because a lot of people are going to try and get through the door and they won't be allowed in. And they'll be banging outside and Jesus will say, who are you? So he's got to strive to enter through the narrow door. The way into the kingdom is hard and it's narrow and it involves dying to everything else and making Jesus, the only, in that sense, the only priority in your life. So you've got to, the, the way in is narrow. It's difficult, right? It's tough. It's very exclusive. Only this way is the only way in. But then, having done that, he says, it's also breathtakingly inclusive. There are going to be people coming into the kingdom of God, he says to this fairly homogenous group of people, but there are going to be people in the kingdom from east and west and north and south, and they're all going to come and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Billions of them from all over the world, from countries you've never even heard of. Places like Britain. What's Britain's, oh, teacher? Oh, it's an island somewhere. I, I made it a long time ago, but you won't hear about it for a good few hundred years. And people even from there are going to come and sit down at table in the kingdom. What? How does that make any sense? He says, no, they will. They're going to come and recline because everyone is invited. And at the same time as he's casting this very exclusive narrow door, he's also describing it as a massive feast in which people from all over the world will come which he shares in other parables as well. There's a songwriter, British songwriter called Stuart Townend, who um, some of us know, and he's, um, part of the he's been part of the family of churches we're in for some, a long time. And he's written a song we sing here called In Christ Alone. Many of us will know it. It's a fantastic hymn about the exclusivity of Christ. Right? It is in Christ alone that my hope is found. It doesn't come anywhere else. We sung songs using the word alone and only this morning, right? A few minutes ago, we were singing, it's, I will worship you alone. That's Christianity. Only there. It's not like, oh, everyone, believe what you want. No, you have to die to yourself and follow him. It's only in him that there's any hope. It's exclusive. But Stuart's written another song which puts the other side of the puzzle. It's a song we don't use. It's a kind of folky song. It's not really for congregational singing, but it's a song called Vagabonds where he describes the other side of Jesus' teaching. Come, all you vagabonds. Come, all you don't belongs. Winners and losers. Come, people like me. Come, all you travelers tired from the journey. Stay a while. Wait a while. Welcome, you'll be. Come, all you questioners looking for answers and searching for reason and sense in it all. Come, all you fallen and come, all you broken. Find strength for your body and food for your soul. Come to the feast. There's room at the table. Come, let us meet in this place with the king of all kindness who welcomes us in with the wonder of love and the power of grace. And I love that the same songwriter can do both of those things at once. Say, it's only in Christ. That's the only way in at the same time as saying it's open to everybody. But you have to go through this very narrow door. But that means everyone's open. So it doesn't matter what tribe you're from, what background you're from. If you come in through the narrow door, everyone's invited. Do you see? It's radically exclusive and radically inclusive at the same time. It's a puzzle of the kingdom. And then the fourth one, which I think is probably the most important one, is that the kingdom is both now and not yet. 
The kingdom of God is both now in verses 10 to 17 and not yet in verses 31 to 35. If you've been around this church a while, you'll have heard us talk like that. It's a very good, simple way of framing what's going on in Jesus' teaching and in the world we live in. So the kingdom of God is now. And you can see that very clearly in this story with the woman with the disabling spirit because Jesus walks in and sees her bent over and simply says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Or in the older translations, I love this for for some reason, it just resonates with me. Woman, thou art loosed. I don't know why I like it, but it just sounds great. Sometimes you need a, a thou art just to make things feel a bit more sticky. But he says, you're loosed, right? You're freed. Right? Immediately she is healed. He lays hands on her. Immediately she straightens and glorifies God. Jesus says, this is a daughter of Abraham. How dare you squabble about whether it's the right day of the week for this? You do it with your cow. Why can't you do it for her? Right? She's a daughter of Abraham. She's been bound by Satan for 18 years, but now the king is here, and the king is going to assert authority over that person. She's going to get straight, and she praises God. Right? We don't have a tug of war here. It's not like the kingdom is kind of, oh, not really here. Well, Satan might be winning. Oh, Jesus might be winning. Oh, Satan. Oh, Jesus. It's not like that. The kingdom of God is here because the king is here. And so when he says, woman, you're free, that's the end of it. But the kingdom is also not yet. Herod, verses 31 to 35, Herod is trying to kill Jesus. And I love the way he goes, go and tell that fox. I just love that phrase. It's like, oh, God, for goodness sake, what does he know? But he says to him, yeah, I'm healing and delivering today and tomorrow. And then on the third day, I'm going to finish my course. You know, I've got to get to Jerusalem because prophets always die there. And that's what's going to happen to me. The kingdom is not yet in the sense that Jesus is on his way to go and die. Right? The kingdom is... Jesus knows that there are things that he wants to happen that are not going to happen. He says it in the end, verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem... I wanted to gather your children under myself, rather like a mother hen gathers her chicks under the wings, and you wouldn't come. I wanted this, and it it hasn't happened, and it isn't going to happen, and you're going to kill me instead. And in fact, you're not going to see me again until much later when you see me returning and you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, the day is coming when you will all see me as king, and the kingdom will be fully here, but it isn't yet. And you're going to kill me, and you're going to reject me, and that's painful for me, and I weep over you. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully here. Now, the fancy term for that, just so you get your money's worth, is inaugurated eschatology, right? Isn't that a great phrase? Now and not yet, four three-letter words. No one thinks theologians taken seriously if you say it in three-letter words. Inaugurated eschatology, everybody goes, ah, strokey beard moment, it must be that. It just means that the end has arrived, has been inaugurated, but it isn't yet consummated. It's not yet complete. And we live in the overlap time. The German theologian Oskar Kuhlmann said, we live in between D-Day and V-E-Day. Normandy landings have happened. Battles are still going on, but from Normandy landings onwards, everyone knows this war's only going to have one winner. But it takes a year to get from Normandy to Berlin, at which time V-E-Day happens, and it's all over. And Kuhlmann said... That's quite interesting for a German to say. He says, at the moment, this age is in between the two. It is the period between the decisive landing and the end of the war. And we live in that time and have to cope with some of the tensions of living in that space. 
So here's a more an, an illustration that personally zings with me a little bit because of the season Liverpool are happening. I, ha- having, I have been handbagged by Man United fans just this morning for using Liverpool analogies two weeks in a row. I'm sorry, but it is a good one, I hope. Right. So a few weeks ago, uh, Liverpool's Brazilian forward Roberto Firmino was on the edge of the 18-yard box. And he does something, he does an outrageous double flick, right? He's got his back to goal, goal's here, and, he's, and the ball is played into him, and he does a double flick, one, a single flick's hard, but he does a little thing, which I can't even mime, I look like Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance, if it was that kind of thing, does a doop chum like this, you can see it online, and the ball, all of the defenders are completely bamboozled as to where it's gone, and it just appears right in the path of Mohamed Salah, who's our star striker, who sweeps around the defender and shoots it straight into the goal. Now, it's a nice goal. But the reason I'm telling you about it is because something remarkable happens when you see the goal from the angle high above the stadium. That the moment Firmino does this flick, several seconds before it's in the back of the net, 50 yards away, our giant man-mountain defender Virgil van Dijk sees the flick and instantly decides it's in the goal. And he just lifts his hands like this in celebration several seconds before it's in the net. So he's like this, and the rest of the crowd are just watching. But he knows that Salah is so effective, and he's in such a good position, and the defenders are so wrong-footed, that it's definitely going to be in the goal, even though it hasn't got there yet. So he just starts celebrating several seconds early. And then a few seconds later, all the rest of the fans get it, and they're all cheering and dancing. And when that happened, I thought, that's me now. I have seen, I'm at the back looking on, and I've seen something of such significance, such intricacy, such cleverness that has bamboozled the enemy to such an extent that I know exactly where it's going to end up, even though it hasn't got there yet. So I just get to risk my hands and start cheering and say, it's in, it's in, we're done, we've conquered. Because I know. That's, it's actually exactly what Winston Churchill did on the 7th of December 1941. He gets news that the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor. And he writes in his diary that day, we won the war. Four years early, if you don't know your history, you're two years into the war, but four years of the war are still to go. So we're less than halfway through. But Churchill writes in his diary that day, we've won the war. Because he says, the Americans are in, and up, up to the neck, he says, and into the death. And he says, and if America's entered the war, there is, even though I don't know how long it's going to take, I know that we're going to win because there's no way that any other country, with got Russia and America both fighting on your side, you're going to win. And he wrote this. He said, we'd won the war. England would live. Britain would live. How long the war would last or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at that moment care. No doubt it would take a long time. Many disasters, immeasurable cost and tribulation lay ahead. But there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and I slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. That's me. That's you. That's what it is to live in the kingdom being now and not yet. Something has happened of such magnitude that even though you don't know how long it's going to take to get there and how much sacrifice might well be called of you and people you love in the meantime, there is no more doubt about the end. And so you can go to bed and you can sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful. It's a paradox of the kingdom. People in this world still suffer and they get sick And they reject Christ, as Jesus has said. They don't repent, many of them. They do perish. They die. Some refuse to repent altogether and harden their hearts and try and kill Jesus and all of his followers. But there is no more doubt about the end. 
Jesus one day is going to say to all of you and to me, and not just what he said to that woman, but he's going to say it to the whole of creation. Creation, men, women, you are loosed. You're free. You no longer have to labor under the bondage of Satan because the king has come to set you free. That's going to happen to the whole world and not just to her one day. But in the meantime, the kingdom is here, spreading, hidden, obscure through the loaf and growing from a little sea into a huge tree in which the whole world can come and find shelter and make their nests. In that middle space, in between the now and the not yet, you and I, we get to pray, Lord, we know your kingdom will one day be here. Come now. We get to share. We get to witness. We get to invite people from east and west and north and south to join and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And we get to celebrate the reality that the king who went to the cross will one day return and the world will stand and say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious king and his glorious kingdom that comes through the cross, that comes through the, the, the painful death and the empty tomb, that comes in all of these, with all this confusion sometimes as we're waiting, when is it going to come? When is it going to come? But we know for sure that it will. And we're so grateful to live in that overlap time, knowing how it ends. Lord, I pray you would equip us with strength, with grace, with prayerfulness, with diligence, to be able to withstand the sometimes awful things that happen to us while we're waiting. Some of us, many of us, lose our lives. We get struck down in this process, and we ask for diligence and perseverance to hang in there as we wait for the resolution of this tension. But Lord, we know that resolved it will one day be, and we pray for your strength as we wait and for your fervency as we pray for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.